Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> they seek him here. They seek him there. Those Frenchies seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven? Is he in hell? That demmed elusive Pimpernel. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the best part of the book we are going to talk about today, The Scarlet Pimpernel by Emma Ortsy. Baroness Emma Ortsy. So The Scarlet Pimpernel, probably a lot of people have heard of this book, do you think? Uh, it's really hard to say because I remember the first time you mentioned it to me and I'd never heard of it and I thought Pimpernel was such a silly sounding word and I don't know, it's it's old enough that I think it's only certain, maybe a certain generation. Well, our literary listeners probably have all heard of it, more than likely. Okay. But anyway, it is, I guess it's considered to be a classic. It's a novel, a novelization actually of a play that Emma Ortsy wrote. She wrote the play. It opened in 1903 in London and was very, very successful. And she then novelized it in 1905. And the book itself was so successful that it spawned at least 10 sequels and several various other books relating to it, prequels and side stories and all kinds of stuff like that. So this was a really, really popular story, a really, really popular book. I find it very interesting because it reminds me of sort of something like Fifty Shades of Grey or Twilight, books that are pretty much universally agreed to be very badly written. <laughs> yet are spectacularly successful because they hit a nerve, they hit just right in a sweet spot for people of, of something that they're interested in that's culturally re relevant maybe, at least stylistically. I mean, vampires, are they culturally, culturally relevant? But the style and, and maybe the way somebody goes about it, there's something about it that just really catches cultural momentum. According to the introduction, this, the play was um, both adored popularly and reviled by critics okay well that totally makes sense to me because it is terrible yeah absolutely terrible we read it out loud i read it out loud to zoe this is something that we do i read out loud to her as my little child look up mary mapes dodge in wikipedia because she was a really cool person uh, unlike Bernice, well, <laughs> Bernice Ortsy was not a bad person. She was pretty conservative, which is not necessarily bad, but she was an aristocrat herself. So she was aristocratically conservative, which is a very kind of different kind of conservatism than a democratic conservative. As the uh, Republican French would say in this book, sacré aristo. <laughs> really. The book itself covers the period of the French Revolution. It takes place in 1792. And again, uh, we should always warn you, there are going to be spoilers. We're going to talk about the whole book. So we will be spoiling the, the, the twist. If you wouldn't figure it out by page one, um, <laughs> we will be spoiling that. So I just wanted to let you know in case you want to watch the movie or read the book before you listen. If you are going to go and, and do that before you listen to this episode, we recommend the movie. Yeah, not, not so much reading the book, unless you're just very literary and really want to are curious, you know. Uh, the book is written in a very, very florid manner, very repetitive, extremely repetitive, um, over and over descriptions of people, over and over descriptions of their thought processes. The writing is quite wild florid bombastic to really kind of get that sense of adventure and i can see that you know someone who's young maybe it you know especially back in 1905 where there's there's no tv there's no move well there are movies but not as we would know them today like little nickelodeon things um 
there's just the theater. Whereas on the theater, people get on the stage and they declaim and it's very big and dramatic that this book really, really, really reflects that style, I think. So it fits that very well. And um, so I can, I can see that, I suppose. I think today the writing, I just can't call it anything but bad. Yeah, it is. And what I do hope that everyone will take away is that we had a lot of fun reading it. Yeah, it's and you might. terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, also, the story itself, although full of logical holes, if you don't think about it and just let it carry you along, it is exciting. And, and when they made it into a film, even though those, some of those holes persist, it was very good. The film from 1934, starring Leslie Howard, Merle Oberon, and Raymond Massey, was terrific. It's a real classic, a five-star classic. But a lot of the plot and the dialogue were improved by the screenwriters in that. One of which was Baroness Ortsy, who uh, Hmm. was uncredited for that. Another one was uh, Robert Sherwood, who was a playwright, uh, who wrote The Petrified Forest. And he, a popular playwright at the time, so I assume his talent and experience in writing drama. Love that film. And then another one that I know of that we watched, The Elusive Pimpernel. That was fun. I, th- I think we should talk about that later maybe, but okay. that was a fun one for me. Yeah we, 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 yeah, we watched The Elusive Pimpernel. That was made in 1950, and it starred David Niven as the Pimpernel and Margaret Layton as his wife. And then uh, Cyril Cusack does an amazing job as the evil Chauvelin. Those are the films that we looked at that were adaptations of this book. Back to the book. It is about Lord Percy Blakeney, who takes on the alias of the Scarlet Pimpernel. And the Pimpernel is a tiny little wayside flower. It's a very common flower in England. And he um, goes to France with his cohort. He's about 19 who obey him. And they save the aristocrats from the guillotine's blade. They're all lords themselves, right? Yeah. And so they only save aristocracy. Well, the, the book doesn't address the fact that there were a lot of people going to the guillotine who are not aristocrats. That's um, true. Who were servants of aristocrats, you know, basically anybody, or who spoke out against the regime. And those people could go to the guillotine as well as being imprisoned. So they don't mention them. Not at all. Just the aristocrats. <laughs> the book kind of, I mean, even though she, Ortsy, is a, an aristocrat, the book does give some negative qualities to the aristocrats, and it does acknowledge that the aristocrats had behaved badly and had trodden upon the peasants, and that they kind of got what they deserved through the mouth of one of the lords. But mostly, we're led to believe that this is an amazing, brave, great thing to do, that they're going over and saving aristocrats from the blade. Yeah, she gives a nod to the other perspective, I think, but then sets out to disprove it by basically just being like, so many of them didn't do anything. They're just aristocrats, which is funny to me because it just completely <laughs> misses the class analysis happening. She's like, they're just innocent aristocrats. Right. Like, they didn't do anything. Right. They just sit in their palaces and <laughs> yeah. get waited on by people and consume way more than, and, and don't actually create anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they're innocent. Yeah. It's not like people suffer to make their luxuries met constantly right know? right it's like those sugar plantations over in haiti with all those slaves right. aren't uh, filling their coffers with a bunch of money you know <laughs> uh, it's so silly to me and so that's part of what i thought was really entertaining about it yeah so he goes over there and dons all sorts of disguises and foils the attempts of the french uh the french secret service to 
determine who he is and to uh, stop him from saving these people. And so basically, the French government sends over Chauvelin, Citoyen Chauvelin. Basically, he's their spy master, and his job is to figure out who this dem delusive Pimpernel is and to... It's very weird. I mean, because they have to wait until he goes onto French soil and they catch him doing something. Now, come on. <laughs> like, they'll just knife him in the back. I know, in, in, in a dark alley in Soho or something. <laughs> yeah. They're not even going to, you know. But okay. So that's that's one of the things that you have to get over in the book is that this is not how it really would ever go down. People don't behave this way. Now, they seem to know everybody in the 19 people who are doing it, but they can't like just follow them until, you know, and figure it out. It's it's so weird. But Blakeney has this impenetrable disguise as a foppish lord who is empty-headed and inane and he giggles and he's useless. And even though he's very tall, apparently, and very handsome, he's got Not this disguise. Not very tall and very handsome. The tallest and the handsomest. Oh, excuse me. That's right. And the and, and as the Pimpernel, the most audacious right. and cunning. <laughs> and elusive. And brave. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, his disguise is as a royal fopling who advises the Prince of Wales on the cut of his coat and the length of the lace on his sleeve. And everyone supposedly can't even figure out that it could possibly be him. And he pretends he doesn't know French and that kind of thing. And so Chauvelin comes over and he uh, realizes that he has caught Armand Saint-Jeux, who is Lord Percy's wife's brother, so Lord Percy's brother-in-law, where uh, Armand was working with the Scarlet Pimpernel. And so they're going to put Armand on the block if Marguerite doesn't somehow apply her uh, her well, wits to finding out who well, the Scarlet Well, what it is, is, I mean, it does make sense because she is the center of society along with her husband, Sir Percy. So she's Armand's sister and she's married to Sir Percy. And they know that these guys are society. Uh, not just society, but they're aristocrats. First of all, they know who some of them are, and they also know that they have to be able to speak French like a native. It's the only way they could have their disguises, right? He tasks her because it's his only way in. The aristocrats obviously have closed ranks, so there's no way that anybody's going to tell him anything. Uh, the spies can only do so much, so she's she's going to be the mole, and she's going to look and listen and try to get information. Therein, we have the intrigue. That she doesn't know that she is actually betraying her husband, who is the Scarlet Pimpernel. Right, and he never has told her because she accidentally (laughs) betrayed an aristocratic family who, I guess they put her in prison or they beat her brother. In the book, they beat her brother. In the movie, they put her in prison. So yeah, they beat her brother to within an inch of his life for being in love with one of the aristocrat's daughters. And so she knew something that they were doing wrong. What were they doing? I think in one oh. of the movies they're like Vienna or something. No, no, Austria. Austria. They, have, they had links with Austria. Okay, so the, the history of this is is that Marie Antoinette was an Austrian princess. Mm. Or I think, she, yeah, no, I think she was a princess. Well, whatever her rank was anyway. She was from Austria. And her relative, and I don't know enough of the history to say exactly how they're related, but it's close to like her uncle or something like that, was the emperor of Austria. And so a lot of the concern at the time of the revolution was because they had her under guard and were potentially going to kill her is that the Austrians would invade France, use that as a reason to invade France and then start a war. And, you know, then we would have a whole taking territory and bloody bloodshed and so forth. And so one of the treasonous uh, acts that I think they believed that, and maybe she did, 
Marie Antoinette committed was to correspond with her uncle and say, come and help me. And that so this censure that Marguerite betrayed, well, I guess she kind of did. It was because he had close ties with Austria or was communicating with with Austria. So that would be treason. So anyway, she accidentally betrayed him in that she was buddies with Chauvelin because she and her brother were both revolutionists. And they were buddies and she didn't know Chauvelin was this spy guy. And she told him about it. I guess she was about 17. She's pretty young. And he took the information and he got this uh, censure family sent to the guillotine. And so the blame by the aristocrats in England devolved upon Marguerite. Or I shouldn't say in England, the aristocrats in France. Right. And then in the meantime, she was uh, hanging out with Sir Percy. He was doggedly in love with her. They got married on the fly. And then after they got married, he heard about this. And so he starts to treat her coldly. And Well, he asks her about it. He says, well, did you? And she just says, yes. And she doesn't explain the circumstances surrounding it. Then he starts treats her coldly because he's the Scarlet Pimpernel. He's going to start saving these people. And also she betrayed his class. And now he's in love with her and he hates her at the same time, right? Does he hate her? No. I don't know. Can't remember. Well, he looks at her with burning desire and and, and in a frigid manner. Yeah. I don't know. Well, he won't. Basically, he he won't he won't be intimate with her and he won't be loving to her uh, because of this situation, and it's tearing them apart. So he carries on this uh, subterfuge underneath her nose. Anyway, she ends up letting Chauvelin know where the Scarlet Pimpernel is going to be, so he can catch him in order to save her brother. So you know, can't fault her too much for that, right? Yeah. Except that later on in the book, she completely forgets about her brother. And she goes, oh my God, I forgot about my brother. Because <laughs> she's so worried about Percy. Because then she finds out who the Scarlet Pimpernel is. And then she insists on going over to France to do what? I don't know. Uh, to warn him ostensibly? Apparently he'd already been warned. Yeah. <laughs> or or his men, you know, his men had been kidnapped and their note was taken from them. I know, yeah. So he, he was already aware that he was in danger. I know. Like, so so we're, we're, we're getting into the weeds here. <laughs> Anyway, she decides to go to France because she wants. She either wants to warn him or die with him, right. save him or die with right. him. So she goes to show her devotion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and also that you're on our side. And so she does go over there, and everything ends up working out, working out just fine. <laughs> and they embrace in the end, and happy ending. Now there, there are some fun disguises and stuff like that. Some the, not so fun disguises. Yeah, well, it was still a fun disguise. It was more kind of the way it was. Well, it was really. A reflection of the time in the book even yeah uh, but they do bring up bring in so we'll warn you on this one they do bring in a jewish peddler who does um have the stereotypic characteristics uh that at the time they would have ascribed to this person racist jewish stereotypes yeah yeah, yeah a little bit i mean i didn't think it was real bad uh, just just know that that's in the book and that we noticed it but i didn't feel that it, it wasn't so offensive that i couldn't that i couldn't continue reading it, well, yeah, it's just, it's cringeworthy because of the time. I yeah, know. yeah. Um, it's not in the movie or any of the movies, no, I don't it, think. They, no. they were like, you know, we're, we're past that time now. We'll just have a different kind of, me- like, mechanism at the end. Right, to, exactly. Like, resolve it. Exactly. So it's a different disguise that he uses. Yeah, so that's how the that's how the book works out. Now, is there, uh, I, I guess we were going to talk about a few items 
from the from the book itself before we talk about the movie, which is always my favorite part. This was good. Did you want to read this? Sure. Okay. Yeah, this is funny. This is a note from the introduction to the book, which is not shy about being like, yeah, this book is bad. Um, and it says, um, it's time to stop and ask, why was Baroness Ortsy so monstrously successful as an author? Good question. One can see some reasons. The plot of the Scarlet Pimpernel is weak. It depends on people who are said to be clever and quick-witted, doing stupid things very slowly, <laughs> and dropping messages saying, I will be in the supper room at one o'clock precisely, and yet the characters have the vast, crude, overwhelming emotions that are demanded by popular fiction. Well, I agree with the vast, crude, popular emotions. Yeah. So I think that is it. It's, it's sweeping. And I think that this, this book, I just don't really see a lot of grown adults reading this book. I mean, I really think it's the kind of the teenage, the younger people, people who have less discernment. I know that I read this book when I was young and I didn't notice any of this stuff. I thought it was great. I mean, I thought it was kind of overblown, you know, big and, but I still, I I'd still, I didn't notice any of this stuff. So when you're younger and you're reading, uh, I think for most of the part, um, you don't really have much discernment because you don't have much to compare it to. And then, you know, now that I've read multiple great works and wonderful writing I read this and I go okay this is bad I mean <laughs> I would I mean personally speaking of course I wouldn't recommend it to a t teenager in this day and age because I think it has bad values but I would recommend it to an adult that I think would be entertained by it yeah well I'm not saying recommend it I'm just saying that's who would have read it yeah at the time and so they wouldn't have noticed how bad it was because they didn't have the discernment of you know experience in in, in reading so I kind of agree with that part of the statement so shall we move into the fun part of reading some passages oh, for yes, the, yes. the listeners? Excellent stuff. Yeah, because it's really fun. It's really overblown. Yeah, and, and it's very repetitive. So anything we read occurred at least 20 times, at least 20 times repeated in the book, which makes it, which is part of the, the thing that we say is not good writing in that she keeps telling you the same thing over and over in pretty much the same words. So I wanted to find a passage where they talk about the Pimpernel because the Pimpernel's characteristics are mysterious and elusive and a quintessential English gentleman. And they repeat, you know. And audacious and cunning and brave. Thank you. Yes. Those are all the adjectives that you will always hear whenever <laughs> they talk about the Scarlet Pimpernel. <laughs> the members of the League jealously guard the secret of their chief. So his fair adorers have to be content with worshipping a shadow. Here in England, monsieur, we but name the Scarlet Pimpernel, and every fair cheek is suffused with a blush of enthusiasm. None have seen him, save his faithful lieutenants. We know not if he be tall or short, fair or dark, handsome or ill-formed, but we know that he is the bravest gentleman in all the world, and we feel a little proud, monsieur, when we remember that he is an Englishman. And then, what's this one? This one is... Um... A description of Marguerite Blakeney. Uh, and one of the things that um, I just found hilarious is, well, as you, as you yourself pointed out, that the aristocrats have certain characteristics. They always have very um, delicate hands, Yeah, for one thing. <laughs> and Like atrophied from lack of work. <laughs> exactly. They're always like, tiny and delicate and elegant. Right. And so Mar they, they constantly... Um, describe Marguerite's hands as child 
hands. Her little ha- hands like a child. But she's also supposed to be tall and kind of a yeah. tall and elegant figure. So, so she's tall and elegant with these little tiny hands. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny. And then she also has a almost childlike mouth. Right. <laughs> so, which is interesting because she's also... I don't. This must. Have, this must have been put in the book a hundred times. I'll bet it's a hundred times that she was the sh- smartest, most intelligent, or the uh, most um, the wittiest woman in all of Europe. She's either the wittiest, most intelligent, or smartest, over and over and over again. So Lady Blakeney never stepped from any house into her coach without an escort of fluttering human moths around the dazzling light of her beauty. But before she finally turned away from Chauvelin, she held out a tiny hand to him with that pretty gesture of childish appeal, which was so essentially her own. She says to him, Give me some hope, my little Chauvelin. With perfect gallantry, he bowed over the tiny hand. Okay, so. <laughs> Twice. Which looked so dainty and white through the delicately transparent black lace mitten and kissing the tips of the rosy fingers. <laughs> that just sounds so gross. <laughs> and that does, uh, her um, white hands with the rosy tips of her fingers has definitely come up at least five times in the book. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> just like, your hands aren't really like that. And then Chauvelin, now, um, Chauvelin, as we said, is the bad guy, if you will, in the spy from France. And he's very... Um, He's very quite zealous, I'd say, and he's honest, and and she does give him that. He's not. He doesn't lie. If he says he'll do something, he does it, which is really important in the plot because he says if she does this, he'll give her the letter from his brother. So we have to know that he'll do that, or there's no makes no sense that she she would actually follow through on that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. She detained him for a while midway down the stairs, trying to get at the thoughts which lay behind that thin fox-like mask. But Chauvelin remained urbane, sarcastic, mysterious. Not a line betrayed to the poor anxious woman whether she need fear or whether she dared to hope. So this thing about him being, he's fox-like. Cat-like. Cat-like, ferret-like. Weasel-like. Weasel-like. Uh, he's got thin lips. And one of his characteristic thing, again, maybe 50 times in the book, he rubs his hands together. <laughs> like a classic Hollywood villain. <laughs> He's just always rubbing those hands together. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, his hands must be small too because they're just worn to nubs by all the rubbing he does. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's one part in the book that I don't, I couldn't find, I'm not sure where it is, where they talks about Percy and trapping Percy and how the eagle uh, is falling into the trap of the ferret. Right. And I'm like, that's an image. <laughs> Yeah, it's very commonly seen in nature, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, did you did you want to read this one where uh, this is near the end? There's one more bit where we just think the writing is. Yeah, actually, it, there's two more. Okay, all right. Here. Okay. Yeah, so this is um, this is indicative of uh, the the terrible choice that Marguerite has to make throughout the entire book about her husband slash the Scarlet Pimpernel versus Armand, and she goes through this cycle every fucking chapter. Several times a chapter. Yeah. (laughs) About Chauvelin. Oh, that fiend in human shape next to her knew human, female, nature well. He had played upon her feelings as a skillful musician plays upon an instrument. He had gauged her very thoughts to a nicety. 
She could not give that signal, for she was weak and she was a woman. Oh, it was all too, too horrible. And, and then upon their reunion. Damn, repeated those same British lips emphatically. Zounds, but I'm weak as a rat. In a moment, Marguerite was on her feet. Was she dreaming? Were those great stony cliffs the gates of paradise? Was the fragrant breath of the breeze suddenly caused by the flutter of angels' wings, bringing tidings of unearthly joys to her after all her sufferings, or, faint and ill, was she the prey of delirium? She listened again, and once again, she heard the same very earthly sounds of good, honest British language, not the least akin to the whisperings from paradise or flutter of angels' wings. Now, there we go. That's quintessential. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's oh the other God. thing about the dialogue in this novel. It has so many, like, fun English slang terms in there. So, like, zounds or odds life, he says a lot. And, the, well, these are the kinds of things that these. this was upper class British slang. <laughs> this was not what they used in the streets. Right. So, again, lud. <laughs> instead of lord yeah well you had to be careful you couldn't use um anything to do anything religious the lord's name in vain okay. yeah right because that was worse that was one of the worst curses like for until very recently bloody was considered a very bad word hmm. because it was god's blood huh so yeah yeah so that's why they had you know had to have these workarounds <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> zooks odds life yeah yeah there's really not a lot to say about the book or the th themes. Is there anything that we're missing that we should be saying about the themes? Or I don't think so. It's pretty shallow. <laughs> but, you know, hey. you, you can try it out. Or if you've read it, uh, I will talk about the edition that we have. I have a, an edition, a Folio Society edition of the Scarlet Pimpernel, which has the weirdest illustrations. It's like someone did they collages. Mm -hmm. And so they take all these things like, so there's like a, a picture of a woman with, you know, with his fancy bouffant hair with a pasted-on bow. And then they, they take these gigantic eyes and put them across the face so that the eyes are like twice as big as, as the face size. And it's all just like out of whack and kind of weird, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's very jarring next to the text, which is all very about like how beautiful and nice everything is. Right, and it's, and it's also very old style. It's very old-fashioned, and this collage-like thing is sort of modernistic and I don't know weird oh we should note that the introduction that we were reading from was written by Hilary Mantel the mm. author of Wolf Hall very famous I'm not familiar yeah yeah she won the Booker Prize like I don't know how many times and um, she's written a series that uh, is basically it's a historical novel so it's based on fact but then she novelizes and fills in based on her research conversations and details and so forth Okay. A novel. And so um, she did Wolf Hall, and I think there are th two other books in the series. I, I haven't read them myself, but I hear that they're very, very highly praised. Hmm. So anyway, that's Hilary Mantel. And then uh, then on to the, the movie. The movie's fantastic. By contrast, takes takes all the points that are fun about the book and actually makes them good. Yeah, exactly. And so as we said uh, earlier, the star of it was uh, Leslie Howard as the Scarlet Pimpernel. And Howard... Um, if you're not all that familiar with him, is most famous for his role as Ashley Wilkes in Gone with the Wind, where he plays an American, a Southern Confederate guy, and he's perfect. 
He's got a really long, kind of a little horsey face, which is very aristocratic, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of a long nose and the blonde hair. And he just is able to flip back and forth between the foppish Lord Percy into the Scarlet Pimpernel just on the on the on a dime you know it'd be like he'll be standing behind his wife looking at her with intense passion burning passion and she'll turn to look at him and in that second he he just goes all vacant and kind of glassy-eyed and yeah (laughs) he does it so well he does nail it and he's funny he's got really got the timing and he says the lines so amusingly it's the case where like reading the book she keeps saying, like, oh, he's so clever, he's so brilliant, you know, the Scarlet Pimpernel so smart and everything. And you just can't tell by reading the character. You're, some of the dialogue and things he says are funny, but, like, you just can't tell. But then Leslie Howard somehow kind of embodies that, so you just, you feel like he actually is clever and brilliant. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, also they add scenes and they add a lot of dialogue to this. I mean, most of the dialogue he has is not in the book because he's really not in the book very much. One of my favorite scenes where he says something that really entertained me was, um, it's a scene where he's being a foppish lordling, but it's really funny where the Prince of Wales comes because he needs some advice on his clothing and his coat and Percy looks at it and he's like, "Mm, it's all right, it's okay, but oh my God, those sleeves, they're horrible. And they're like, oh my God, what's wrong with them? And he's like, you've got to let that lace breathe. You got to let it flow. Yeah. (laughs) When, when 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 the prince takes snuff, it should be like a swallow's flight. Yeah, <laughs> that's my favorite line. <laughs> that is a good one. It's just so good. I love it, love it, love it. And he's tall, so like the character's supposed to be. So he wears the clothes extremely well. So he looks, you know, he pulls off that, that clothing, that period clothing very well. Mm-hmm. Also, interestingly enough, they were originally planning to cast Charles Lawton in this role unbelievable i'll show you a picture of him later you probably don't know what he looked like Um, but charles lawton was short chubby really unattractive guy uh great actor absolutely great actor but i don't know what they were thinking and then a cry of protest went up from the fans of the book so they rethought (laughs) their choice yeah he would have been so wrong (laughs) he would have acted the hell out of it but it just it wouldn't have worked because you do need the good looks because that is that's part of the stereotype. I mean, well, Leslie Howard, is he good looking? Do you think he's good looking? I don't really think he's good looking. I, I mean, I think he is he maybe not in the most conventional way. Yeah. yeah. He's elegant. He's got an attractiveness because he, he pulls off a, a certain carriage and confidence. And he's not ugly or anything. But I, I wouldn't call him, you know, he's no... He's no Earl Flynn. Oh, there you go. And then the woman opposite him is Merle Oberon who, her nickname was Queenie in real life. It was half Indian, India Indian, and nobody really kind of knew. Interesting. She kind of, you know, slid under the radar. I mean, I don't know that it was like, hush, hush, secret, you know, kind of thing. I think people maybe in the industry knew, but uh, it was not known. So she was able to play parts in films and, and leads and stuff of white characters, and nobody was any the wiser. And she's, she's gorgeous. Very, extremely beautiful. And I have to say, I never really noticed her acting that much, but she was very good in this, comparing her to the book, right. where this woman's supposed to be so brilliant and so witty, and she never says one witty thing in the entire book. And she's all hysterical or Spends upset the whole time or worried. her hands, yeah. Yeah, and in, in suspense all the time. And yes, this woman must be upset, obviously. She's being put under a lot of pressure. And Merle Oberon really 
carries it off. First of all, her part is written way better than in the book, but she uses it very well. I believed that she was an attractive, intelligent, witty society woman. Very beautiful. And there's real chemistry between her and uh, Howard, which, you know, you don't often see in movies. Especially older ones when the acting style was just more... Declamatory. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, I think that chemistry came from the fact they were actually having an affair during the filming Uh of the movie. (laughs) Howard would frequently abandon his wife and go off and have affairs. And he was really well known for it. Hmm. As bad as Errol Flynn, if not worse. Wow. But he wasn't quite the same kind of jerk, jerky behavior, you know. More pure philanderer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. More of a gentlemanly philanderer. He was very well known for that. But anyway, luckily for us, the interlude they were having together really came to the screen. And you could really see the desire between them. That helps a lot. And then the Chauvelin... I thought he did a pretty good job was Raymond Massey. And Raymond Massey is a stage actor. He's tall and thin. Straight cut, black wig. Yeah. He didn't, but he didn't rub his hands. I don't remember him even rubbing his no, hands I don't once. Think so. <laughs> he knew better, thank goodness. And uh, yeah, but he was, you know, sort of inveigling and conniving and that way about him that made him feel a little bit dangerous. But he's always being taken aback by the Scarlet Pimpernel. So that was good. And then also appearing in the film is Nigel Bruce, who you'll all remember as the Watson to Basil Rathbone's Sherlock Holmes. And he plays perfectly the Prince of Wales. It's a perfect role for him. This is the kinds of things he did all his career. Beautifully acted, I think. A buffoon, a bit of puffery, but yet heart stout of an oak in his loyalty to his country. <laughs> I really wish that there's a restored version of this someday oh. because we watched it on DVD, I think. And you can tell that the costumes are amazing and stuff, but you just can't see the detail. Yeah, it's pretty grainy, and it has not been restored, so I, I really wish Criterion... Yeah, so I don't know why they picked it up. Criterion people are listening, yeah. I wish they picked it up. It's fa- it would be a fantastic film. So we highly recommend that one. Uh, and then uh, we did also watch The Elusive Pimpernel, but you liked The Elusive Pimpernel better than I did. Yeah, you gave it like one star afterwards. All the actors, except for Chauvelin, were bland and boring and yet the spectacle of it fascinated me so much well this is one that also needs to be restored because it was in technicolor and it was a powell pressburger film which is you know anybody who knows english film knows that that pair they were uh, crucial to the development of english cinema after uh, world war ii and so they did this kind of wackadoodle version goofy yeah i mean it really is it's it's absolutely it's kind of slapstick yeah comedy ridiculous very flamboyant yeah but they do use pretty much use the script from the 1934 version i somehow i guess maybe got rights to using it but the dialogue is like from the other film and so it's not bad dialogue or anything but they stage it so weirdly sometimes yeah david niven david niven plays um percy blakeney i don't know he's very famous and he's got that, he was that suave English guy, that's what he played. I never thought, he's really not much of an actor. He's not a very good actor, and so he's really kind of terrible in this. Uh, he delivers the lines between being a fop and being the Scarlet Pimpernel exactly the same. He doesn't shift. Um, he does, you know, the comedy part, okay, where you know, he has to do like kind of goofy pop up. His head pops up and he says things, or he jumps into a pool bugs his and out. bugs his yeah. eyes out. And I mean, he's all right, but you know, he's. I don't. First of all, I don't think he's handsome. 
Although he does have that aristocratic, long-nosed look. He's definitely, him. and he's, like, much older than the character is supposed to be, too. Yeah, he is. So, eh. Yeah. You know, and then Margaret Layton, who is really a primarily stage actress, although she played in a lot, a fair number of British films. This is not the role for her. Yeah. She, she has this, like, squeaky voice, which is really interesting, that she kind of comes in, she's kind of, she's more like a, a business business marguerite i don't know <laughs> well she's uh she's not particularly beautiful in a, in a standard sort of way she didn't have anything that marguerite is described as and then and she does does not deliver her lines well i think she must have been unhappy in this film i don't know i've seen her in other things and she's kind of okay she's like the woman who owns the house where a murder occurs you know <laughs> She's just really solid, but not, uh, yeah, anyway. So, and the, there's zero chemistry between her and Niven, absolutely none. Yeah. And he's not acting the desire either very well. But then Chauvelin. Yeah, he's great. He's fantastic. Cyril Cusack. So again, if you know English filmmaking, you'll know Cyril Cusack. He uh, was a great Shakespearean actor and theatrical actor in England. And he does it really interesting take on Chauvelin. Yeah, how would you describe that? I don't know. It's almost, not feral, more like reptilian. He speaks very softly, and the menace is, you know, in the softness of his voice. His line readings are unique, absolutely unique. He's like oily, but he has this intensity, but somehow, because the movie's so goofy, there's a lot of goofy stuff that he has to deal with. And to be, like, surprised and thrown off, and yet he still maintains the villainy, you know, aspect. Yeah, yeah he never gets thrown off his pins as his character's principles. Because you do feel like he's very principled to the extent that he would go into an underground cavern and cut somebody's fingers off to get their information. information. Totally. You know? So you don't get the sense that he's cruel to be cruel. It's almost like he really does embody the fact that this person has nothing. He's not a person. He's a factotum of the revolution. Does that make sense? Well, he dresses in all black and he's got his like kind of long, straight cut black wig on. Yeah. But then he has this like sash around his waist that's a red, white, and blue. Yeah, yeah. the tricolor. It's like the French flag. I think that's perfect. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and he's got this sense of, he's like the Terminator. He has no remorse. Relentless. He has no pity. He will never give up. <laughs> you cannot bargain with him. <laughs> if you watch this, in my opinion, it's worth watching it just for him. But I was really, really excruciatingly bored during this film. <laughs> I was fascinated by the locations and the costumes and stuff like that because it is psychedelic almost. It like, has a super fantasy aspect. You're right. Yeah. It is, it's got a surrealness to it. There's all these elaborate French castles with these technicolor rose mazes in front of them and then the peasants are coming and they all have pitchforks and it looks like they took pirate costumes. I know and they were at like, a patch on the eye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah the costumes are and, and it's, it's like they said, well, we've got these many people and we don't have enough yeah. costumes so just go in the closet and pick something that looks period. Yeah. Yeah. That, that happened in several scenes. Yeah. It's really funny and then and the tide comes in the tide comes out and there's some beautiful shots of this water coming in and then and then I think they filmed a lot of it in an actual monastery and so the climax is in the big monks monastery and I guess anybody listening by now should know how much I love monks and monasteries so that might have made me love it a lot more too right and then well the the one scene that's the most surreal is there's a scene that in the book and in the movie take place in the men's club where the men are getting together to discuss 
Well, in this one, it takes place in a steam bath <laughs> where they're all wearing togas. <laughs> and it's got like a, just a blue curtain in the background. So it's obviously a soundstage where they just set up this blue curtain. It's just got some couches. So it's very inexpensively done. But they're, they're all running around in, in, in these togas, throwing water on stacks of heated cannonballs. Yeah. And this one guy's carrying this little dog around. You're like, what is that? <laughs> it's, that's what I mean by flamboyant. Oh, like. it totally is. It totally is. It's very, very weird. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're interested. And if you like Powell and Pressburger movies, then you should check it out. But I did start playing solitaire during the movie because I was so bored. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, there we go. So split opinion on that one. And then we did also watch another film that was based on the idea of the Scarlet Pimpernel, uh, but it took place in modern times. It's called Pimpernel Smith. Pimpernel in quotations. The word Pimpernel never occurs in the film. And basically what it is, it's a callback uh, to the original one because this one stars Leslie Howard as a British agent. Slash no professor oh that's right he's not really an agent he's a professor he's like the prototype for indiana jones in the sense of absent-minded professor archaeologist archaeologist and he goes in into germany and he saves people from the concentration camps and uh smuggles them out through i guess in this case through switzerland and so it's the same thing where he wears the disguises and he's got the team in this case these sort of callow students who yeah. aren't trained to do anything he, he just invites them on this trip with him i guess as a cover but yeah. like he takes these like four un, unknowing young men with him and it's like that's pretty damn dangerous for them and for him because they don't know what's going on and they're not trained well there's more of them four they're like eight of them and then they figure it out so then they want in and then they're stupid and they run their mouths this one guy runs his mouth and he's telling everybody well he isn't telling the secret but he says how great this guy is oh he's amazing if he only knew the things he did and it's just like shut up you're talking to the nazis yeah <laughs> don't talk to the nazis <laughs> so basically then the nazi uh, news starts to close in around and they start to suspect eventually pimpernel smith and it he's goes on like a woman that. yeah yeah and she's i actually thought she was kind of interesting but yeah mm. she she's a nazi mole and she's trying to inveigle her way in and figure out who was so she plays to save the, her father so, so it's she, noble so she basically it's the marguerite blakeney role um so you know and then it just kind of devolves exactly the way you would expect for a propaganda film made in the middle of the uh, i think it was 42 so it's made in the middle of world war ii and howard was a huge propagandist for the british side and some say he was even a spy well, who was gathering information and taking it back i don't know whether that's true or not, but that's been said. But he definitely did a lot of trips over into Europe to raise morale and on various diplomatic kind of missions and things like that. So he was very active at the time. This film was made by his production company, right? Right. So it went as you expected where he got away and spirited off into the night and, and, and he'll be back. We'll yeah. be back, he says <laughs> at the end. And I found this film just moderately okay. Yeah, it started out and we were like, this could be interesting. And then and then immediately, I think he's like, we've got to get the girls out of the classroom oh, so we right. can go over to Europe. They, they open with a whole bunch of misogyny. integration yeah. Because <laughs> he has women in his class. And of course, this was, you know, fairly unusual at the time for women to 
blah, blah, blah. And so he's got three women in his class, and so he ends up just being super insulting. And they leave in a huff, and then he says to the men, okay, now that we've got rid of the women, right? I'm going on this trip over. And, you know, you could say, well, maybe he was, and he was just because it wouldn't be safe for women to go, which is misogynist in and of itself. Um, but that was, you know, that was very annoying. Yeah. And so I have to admit, it probably set me up against the film immediately where if it had been great, I would have been ultimately won back over again. Yeah. But it wasn't good enough to make me love them again. Yeah. Sorry. Very annoying. I was entertained. <laughs> the one thing I was entertained by was when he's he's freeing one guy from this Nazi camp and it's this like open field and they're all, oh, like, yeah. you know, they're like using pickaxes and stuff or digging, whatever, in chain gang fashion. And... There's a scarecrow in the middle of the field, and for some reason, one of the soldiers en- ends up shooting the scarecrow in the arm, and and then you see the blood dripping down, and oh, this, he was disguised himself as a scarecrow so that he could get into the camp and free this guy. But it's like an open field, like yeah. I mean, for for this, as far as the eye can see, <laughs> yeah. practically. I mean, there's some trees way in the distance. <laughs> how did he get there? How did he get there? Seen? And and how is he going to get down off of that thing? <laughs> yeah. And. Maybe at night. That's all I can say. It's a funny visual gag that makes no sense. Yeah, and since the field is totally plowed, yeah, there'd be footsteps. Well, I guess maybe he had a twig, but then where did he put the twig? I mean, it's like you could really go into the into the weeds on that one. Yeah, yeah. So again, if it had been a good movie, just overlook it and enjoy because it it's clever. Anyway, so out of all those films, uh, the 1934 version is the one we recommend. I hope you enjoyed our little <laughs> foray into the Scarlet Pimpernel. <laughs> I uh, would love to hear, if you love the Scarlet Pimpernel, let us know what you love about it. We'd love to, to hear that. We do have a, an email address at foiblespodcast at gmail.com. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Grand.